This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. This wasn't even an episode that we had planned as part of the season. That's true. It feels almost like a present that was dropped on us serendipitously in the middle of our season of antitrust. And it highlights exactly why we put the season together. Remember, the whole premise of the season is to explore how technology has facilitated the breakdown of trust in our culture and society, as well as the institutions that we rely on and what's happening to rein in the worst actors and 
We, of course, also want to highlight the positive impacts that technology's had because it's definitely not all doom and gloom over here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And just as we came off the last episode about privacy and honestly the lack of it within our lives online, mainly because of companies like Facebook and Google, the Washington Post drops this bombshell of internal documents that Frances Hagen, the former Facebook data scientist, had copied before she left the company, now known as the Facebook paper. Thousands of pages of internal documents and web pages, screenshots of their internal company chats, and it doesn't paint a pretty picture. So today we're going to spend this entire episode talking about the Facebook papers and why it matters. And maybe we'll get into the Zuckverse or... I don't know. What, what did he call it again? <laughs> yeah, like meta, metaverse. So yeah, we'll get into that towards the end of the episode. So if you're curious as to why Facebook, I, I mean, meta is shifting focus to the metaverse, stay tuned. And it's not to simply deflect attention away from their abysmal PR as of late. There is a bigger strategic narrative that's important to understand. All right. So let's get into it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So last week, we discussed the Cambridge Analytica leak that allowed the private company to build comprehensive psychological profiles on enough U.S. citizens to have a meaningful impact in the 2016 elections. And they did this by stealing our data from Facebook. Now, they alone didn't get Trump elected, but... They were one of the many influence campaigns that were proven to have an effect on voters through the spread of mis- and disinformation. And then, just last week, the Washington Post obtained thousands of internal documents from Francis Hagen, a former Facebook data scientist. Meta, you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. So, I don't know, I'm not ready for the transformation yet, but for clarity, we'll call them Facebook in this episode, and then we'll cover a bit of Meta and the Metaverse towards the end of the show, because it's important that we understand their goals behind this investment. So, to start... David, that's right, with a slew of negative headlines about Facebook's failure to tamp down on the spread of radicalizing content and also its failure to respond to the concerns of employees, this morning, Facebook responding with a statement saying, quote, at the heart of these stories is a premise which is false. Yes, we're a business and we make profit, but the idea that we do so at the expense of people's safety or well-being misunderstands where our own commercial interests lie. The truth is we've invested $13 billion and have over 40,000 people to do one job, keep people safe on Facebook. Meanwhile, right now, Frances Haugen's testimony is underway before the UK Parliament. That uh, committee she's speaking to is evaluating an online safety bill, Haugen focusing so far on the power of Facebook's groups to create and spread polarizing content. These headlines were captured when Frances Hagen copied thousands of pages of internal documents and web pages before she left the company. Then she shared those materials with the Wall Street Journal, which began publishing stories about them last month under the headline, The Facebook Files. Weeks later, she began to parse the materials out to a variety of news organizations. The files have now become known as the Facebook Papers, drawing lineage back to revelations about the US military intervention in Vietnam 50 years ago known as the Pentagon Papers. Journalists are hot on the papers these days. We have the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, and most recently, the Afghan Papers. The Facebook Papers reveal in great detail that Facebook and its platforms, Instagram and WhatsApp, are riddled with flaws that cause harm. 
often in ways that the company fully understands but refuses to act on in a meaningful way. The central findings are outlined in the Wall Street Journal series that include the research reports, online employee discussions, and drafts of presentations to senior management. Here's a clip from an NBC segment on the documents. For years, Facebook has been studying practically every social ill that plagues its platforms, from misinformation to threats of violence. And newly revealed documents show the company appears to be at war with itself as to what should be done about it. In a post called What is Collateral Damage on an internal message board, an employee says when it comes to misinformation, Facebook's core mechanics allow potentially dangerous and harmful content to flourish. Divisive posts and comments, researchers warned, seem to be better for business. Facebook's content ranking algorithms were the main focus in reporting on these papers. These algorithms decide what content people see and what content is recommended to them and are a major source for discovery of more and more extreme content, which generally keeps people more engaged on the platform than, say, like dog photos. In its early years, Facebook's algorithm prioritized signals such as likes, clicks, and comments to decide which posts to amplify. Publishers, brands, and individual users soon learned how to craft posts and headlines designed to induce likes and clicks, giving rise to what became known as clickbait. By 2013, upstart publishers such as Upworthy and Viral Nova, they were amassing tens of millions of readers with articles designed specifically to game Facebook's newsfeed algorithm. Facebook realized that users were growing wary of misleading teaser headlines, and the company recalibrated its algorithm in 2014 and 2015 to downgrade clickbait and focus on new metrics, such as the amount of time a user spends reading a story or watching a video and incorporating surveys into what content users found most valuable. Around that same time, its executives identified video as a business priority and used the algorithm to boost native videos shared directly to Facebook. By the mid-2010s, the newsfeed had tilted towards slick, professionally produced content, especially videos that would hold people's attention. In 2016, however, Facebook executives grew worried about a decline in what they called original sharing. Users were spending so much time passively watching and reading that they weren't interacting with each other as much. Young people in particular, they shifted their personal conversations to rivals such as Snapchat, which offered more intimacy. Once again, Facebook began modifying its algorithm. It developed a new set of goal metrics that it called meaningful social interactions, designed to show users more posts from friends and family and fewer from big publishers and brands. In particular, the algorithm began to give outsized weight to posts that sparked a lot of comments and replies. The downside of this approach was that the posts that sparked the most comments tended to be the ones that made people angry or offended them. This is what the documents show. Facebook became an angrier, more polarizing place, much like Twitter. It didn't help that starting in 2017, the algorithm had assigned reaction emojis, including the angry emoji, five times the weight of a simple like, according to company documents. Five times the weight. So one angry emoji helped to boost a post five times more than a simple like. And we're surprised that it created a more toxic and polarizing online atmosphere. Here's ex-Facebook executive Shamath Palatapia on a segment from CNBC. We know for a fact that what all of these systems do, every single one, is it exploits our own natural tendencies in human beings to get and want feedback. And that feedback, chemically speaking, is the release of dopamine in your brain. And so what these feedback loops do, and they exist everywhere, in Call of Duty, in other video games, in social networking sites, they get you to react. 
And I think that if you get too desensitized and you need it over and over and over again, then you become actually detached from the world in which you live. You become callous, you become crude. And you live in front of your screen. But, but Shamat, let me ask you. You live in front of your screen. That was the goal. And we've all experienced that by now, wanting to get up or sign off, but feeling that pull of needing to get the last word in in a heated discussion with someone on Instagram or Facebook or even worse, some random commenter at the bottom of a sensational news article. We're always just one comment away from changing someone's mind on the internet, aren't we? So, all right, there is much more to dive into, but first, a quick break. So back to the concept of meaningful social interactions, which became the key driving indicator for Facebook's algorithm work. So at the time of the update, Facebook spokesman Adam Asurlis said, the goal of the meaningful social interactions ranking change is in the name, improve people's experiences by prioritizing posts that inspire interactions, particularly conversations between family and friends. We're continuing to make changes consistent with this goal like new tests to reduce political content on Facebook based on research and feedback. But in the papers, it reveals that Facebook researchers found that for the most politically oriented 1 million American users, nearly 90% of the content that Facebook shows them is about politics and social issues. These groups also receive the most misinformation, especially a set of users associated with mostly right-leaning content who were shown one misinformation post out of every 40, according to a document from June 2020. And there were other studies done on Facebook. Researchers also created fictitious accounts to examine where Facebook's rules and recommendations sent them. One set up to follow conservative news got conspiracy recommendations after only two days. Which is just wild. There was another test user account that was set up in India, and within the first month, they started to receive extreme anti-Muslim posts in their feed simply because they followed political and conservative-leaning news outlets and groups. The researchers commented that they had seen more pictures of dead bodies on this account than they had seen in their entire lifetime. Now, this is a huge problem on other platforms as well. YouTube comes to mind as another platform where extremist rabbit holes have been highly effective, mostly due to the fact that YouTube's algorithm is designed to keep eyeballs on the site just like Facebook's. And they do this by feeding active users slightly more and more extreme content, which is proven to keep them intrigued. So if you're into, say, alternative medicine, there's a slow and gradual path into anti-vaccination content, which will eventually lead to the wide-reaching QAnon conspiracy theory as content creators themselves have gotten very good at optimizing their content for clicks, and Facebook rewards them for it. It's really the currency of the internet our attention that has pushed us into this model where recommendation technology has become incredibly good at knowing what content will keep you engaged and opportunistic content creators have figured out how to take advantage of our outrage in exchange for ad dollars or hawking their own products like herbal supplements and societal breakdown survival kits. And all of these algorithmic decisions and actions taken by the leadership of platforms like Facebook and YouTube, they've led us to this moment. Take, for instance, the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, where a gunman, radicalized online, streamed his 19-minute attack on Facebook Live to a group of right-wing extremists. Here's a clip from Sky News. It was a massacre that changed a country. This uh, is and will be one of New Zealand's darkest days. 
Brenton Tarrant opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch, killing 51 people. He's just an animal. This guy's an animal. The attack was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in New Zealand's history. How do you plead? Guilty. But who is this extremist? And what happened in those 19 minutes of terror? The memos also outline how Facebook has helped to spread misinformation and hateful content in India, one of their biggest markets. Hindu and Muslim users in India say that they're subjected to a large amount of content that encourages conflict, hatred, and violence on Facebook and WhatsApp, such as material blaming Muslims for the spread of COVID-19 and assertions that Muslim men are targeting Hindu women for marriage as a form of Muslim takeover of the country. Facebook knows that this information is damaging, some of it even originating from the ruling government, which sounds familiar to the United States in many ways, but they have repeatedly refused to take action in the name of what I'll call both sidesism. They don't want to restrict the viewpoints of an extremist political party who also spend money on the platform for advertising because they don't want to be thought police. And this is understandable. I mean, there's a lot of gray area here. And I don't think we want any single platform deciding exactly what we can and can't see. But the problem stems from the fact that they're purposely pushing content that drives negative emotional responses. Think back to that angry reaction that has five times the weight of the like button, because that is the emotion that keeps people on the site, interacting and sharing with their network. So they've weighted this content as more valuable to be shared on the platform and leveraged the viral effects of the platform to help it spread. And you might say, but Facebook doesn't decide on what content people share, which is true, but they do things like recommending groups based on your interests, which leads to people joining these echo chambers of misinformation where this content actually thrives. And then they decide the order and treatment that the content is given in your newsfeed. Articles that generate a lot of attention and engagement, the articles in India painting Muslim men as plotting a cultural takeover by marrying Hindu women, it gets preferential treatment in the newsfeed. While the company may not directly control what any given user posts, by choosing which types of posts will be seen, it sculpts the information landscape according to its business priorities. Some within the company would like to see Facebook use the algorithm to explicitly promote certain values such as democracy and civil discourse. Others have suggested that it developed and prioritized new metrics that align with users' values. As with a 2020 experiment in which the algorithm was trained to predict which posts they would find good for the world and bad for the world and optimize for the former. Others just want to see it return to a timeline feed where content is simply shown in the order it's posted removing the algorithmic recommendation weight from consideration. But even that would come with trade-offs. The users and institutions that post most frequently with the largest existing audiences, they would dominate our feeds. While worthy ideas and clever videos from those with smaller followings, they'd have less of a chance of reaching people who might be interested. It's a tricky problem without a clear-cut answer, but it's clear that the current solution isn't working. The papers show that employees have been extremely vocal about these concerns, but management has been effective in suppressing or simply acknowledging and not taking action on them. One of its more clever tactics is to argue that staffers who've raised the alarm about the damage done by their employer are simply enjoying Facebook's very open culture in which people are encouraged to share their opinion. This stance allows Facebook to claim transparency while ignoring the substance of the complaints. 
and the implication of the complaints that many of Facebook's employees believe their company operates without a moral compass. One of the major events that triggered this dialogue internally was the January 6th insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. The day after the presidential election on November 4th, a Facebook group titled Stop the Steal was created to spread misinformation about the election fraud and Democrats stealing the election from the fragile ego of the then-residing Republican president. Within hours, this Stop the Steal group was growing at a mind-blowing rate. At one point, it was acquiring 100 new members every 10 seconds. It soon became one of the fastest-growing groups in Facebook history. As the Stop the Steal group grew, Facebook employees traded messages on the company's internal chat platform, expressing anxiety about their role in spreading election misinformation. Not only do we not do something about combustible election misinformation and comments, one wrote on November 5th, we amplify and give them broader distribution. Why? By then, less than 24 hours after the group's creation, Stop the Steal had grown to 330,000 members, and the group's administrators couldn't keep up with the pace of commenting. Facebook employees were worried that Stop the Steal members were inciting violence, and the group came to the attention of executives. Facebook, now to its credit, promptly shut the group down. But we now know that the Stop the Steal had already reached too many people too quickly to be contained. The movement splintered into smaller, less traceable groups, and Facebook remained a key hub for people to coordinate the attack on the U.S. Capitol. More than 600 people have now been charged with crimes in connection to January 6th, and Facebook was actually instrumental in providing the Justice Department with identifying information based on content that was shared on Facebook on that day. Okay, so now we understand the implication of trusting these for-profit ad networks like facebook twitter google with massive amounts of our personal data it's clear that the mass spread and consumption of extremist content in the name of serving more ads has real world implications and these are not just innocent thought experiments and intellectual online discussions this activity sometimes is resulting in unrest around the world and it's instrumental in sowing distrust, division, hatred. It's clearly causing more harm than good when algorithms are fine-tuned to serve more and more extreme content to keep viewers engaged and consuming more content, no matter how shocking, false, and hate-filled the ideas expressed are. And that brings us to Meta. Right after a quick break. So before the break, we're about to transition into Meta, the most exciting release last week by the now fine-tuned AI that is Mark Zuckerberg. As Facebook announced its rebrand to Meta and their company's focus and investment into the metaverse, the world got to witness the visionary himself introducing this new concept. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Hey, are you coming? Yeah, just got to find something to wear. All right, perfect. Boy. <laughs> oh, hey, Mark. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Hi. Mark. What's up, Mark? Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh -huh. Who made this place? It's awesome. <laughs> right? It's from a crater I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. <laughs> Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> 
The Slick Produce video shows Zuck and pals hanging out in a virtual reality world where they're floating in a space station setting up to play a card game. Okay, but what is the metaverse? Well, Meta's take on this metaverse is a new phase of interconnected virtual experiences using technologies like virtual and augmented reality. Okay, but let's break that down a bit, right? What really is at stake is Facebook is trying to beat Apple and Google to the next technological frontier, and Meta is betting that it will be augmented and virtual reality. They're imagining a world where AR and VR headsets are as ubiquitous as cell phones, and if they are the first movers into the space from a hardware and software or platform perspective, they can drive the space in the direction that they want and control their access to our user data. Ah, which they're missing out on today with Apple's privacy and data sharing restrictions on mobile. That's right, because Apple owns the OS, hardware, and app store. They command an exorbitant amount of power in the mobile ecosystem, which they recently cut Facebook out of. According to the Wall Street Journal, Apple earned $8.5 billion in profits from its 30% take on mobile games in its app store. $2 billion more than the operating profit generated in the sector during the equivalent 12-month period from gaming giants Sony, Activision, Nintendo, and Microsoft. Now, this is a side note on these fees, but Apple and Google take as much of each dollar spent on Roblox, the online game platform and game creation system, as the company itself and the independent creators and developers who just build games and in-game items, which really just, I don't know, just feels off. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. So the control over this metaverse economy is part of what's at stake. The first movers and then eventual winners will play a key part in defining how the economy operates. And if Apple and Google were to win, there's a good chance that they would apply this 30% tax on creators just as they do today. But Facebook, or Meta, laid out their vision for the ecosystem, which is a decentralized platform where no single company would own the ecosystem as they do today. This is what he means when he's talking about data portability and building an ecosystem where someone could carry these core user properties and valuables with them. Think of being able to easily move between iOS and Android, and they're able to create your account and preferences from a shared third-party decentralized profile of you, data that you own and isn't restricted to a platform. Or another example would be between services like Apple Music and Spotify. Today, platforms make it incredibly hard to switch because you lose all your playlists, your songs, your likes, the artist follows, etc. But in this world that Zuck is proposing, there would be portability and companies would have to compete on experience and not just simply relying on the fact that you won't switch because they have your data locked up in their platform. At the very least, Facebook or Meta, they've openly laid out this plan for the metaverse and paid lip service to interoperability, user ownership, and low fees. Apple hasn't. Even if Meta doesn't live up to the words, a world in which it builds hardware and experiences that compete with Apple's could be better for developers, creators, and users. Plus, it seems that Meta does understand that one company shouldn't, can't, and won't control this metaverse. And the best strategy for Meta is to use its resources to make sure that the metaverse gets here soon, pulls us away from our phone, grows the GDP of the metaverse, and takes a small piece of as much of that growing pie as it can. All while commanding a bigger presence across the entire ecosystem from hardware to software so that it doesn't get locked out of access to user data as it now has on mobile. It's not a bad world if you trust Meta to be a good actor. 
they themselves have an app store and they themselves have taken immense liberties with the data they've collected on us as we've covered last week with the Cambridge Analytica case. And they've allowed it to be used and leveraged against us unknowingly by bad acting third parties. They've also proven to be heavy handed with the changes and that can often frustrate developers. I feel like we need to do an entire episode on Web3 and the metaverse. You know, that might actually be a good idea for a future season. It's definitely fascinating and complex stuff and all very product focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's pencil it in. So, look, the Facebook papers are damning, to say the least. They tell a clear story about a company knows its impact on the world and that it's increasingly negative and that it has problems that are beyond the scale of oversight and, in many ways, its leadership has written these impacts off as either a fix would be detrimental to the bottom line or people are just being people and we are not here to be thought police. It's also clear that the people working at Meta are concerned but do not have a clear path to influence change because leadership doesn't want change until they're absolutely forced to. There is a future they are being forced into where decentralization and interoperability would give us control back, some of it. But given their previous track record, I'm not sure any of these current organizations are the ones that we want to be leading the way into the next frontier, however that manifests. And there is a potential, as with many other technological and cultural shifts, that new players emerge with new philosophies, visions, and ambitions for the future. And we're all collective influencers in the future. What products we choose to use will ultimately determine who wields influence and control in this world. What's clear is companies are preparing for this new frontier, and it's important for us to know where their motivations are beyond all the slick marketing and messaging. So we'll be back next week with more of season 11 of Rocketship.fm titled Antitrust, where we're exploring how technology has both helped shape our world today and has broken down the trust within our culture and institutions. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to the podglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com. 